Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000-ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are Timmins Gold, Bravada Gold Corp., Air, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I'm really pleased to have back with me again Chris Martinson. For those of you who are not aware of Chris, uh, he has a Ph.D. in pathology that he earned from Duke University, and he holds an MBA uh, that he obtained from Cornell. Chris is truly an independent thinker, which is why I like him. What good does it do us to accept conventional wisdom all the time, especially when the conventional wisdom is proven to be wrong time and time again? Chris challenges us to think outside the box uh, the establishment would put us into, and most importantly, Chris has put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. By that, I don't mean just his portfolio, but he's changed his lifestyle into what he believes uh, all of us will be required to change into eventually, and his philosophy is better to do it voluntarily than to be forced uh, to do it sometime in the future. Chris explained all of this in a previous show that I did with him back on April 9th uh, when I told, titled that show, A Richer Life with Less. So I would strongly suggest those of you who have not listened to that show, you go back to the April 9th show, which you can download by I, uh, via the iStore or uh, at Voice America, and the best way to go uh, to get to Voice America website uh, my page on the Voice America website is to go to jtaylormedia.com. Now, today I want to talk to Chris. Uh, well, I, I want to talk to him a little bit about energy, possibly, but uh, there is some very important legislation that's, that's working its way, supposedly, through Congress. So I think we'll probably want to talk to Chris later uh, after that legislation becomes more clear. We want to talk to him later, uh, some other date, perhaps, about that topic uh, when, when it's uh, clarified. Uh, but today I would like to touch more specifically on the economy and the housing market in particular because there may be signs that despite the mainstream poppy talk about all this 
uh, that everything is fine and on the mend in the housing market may not quite be uh, what it's cracked up to be. So uh, that's mainly what we want to talk to Chris about. Well, really good to have you again, Chris. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jay. It's good to be back. Yeah, I, I, you know, I understand there is some important legislation uh, making its way through Congress. Uh, I, I guess it's something you would rather probably talk about in the future. But uh, you have been, maybe you could just talk momentarily about, uh, you have been a critic of fracking or uh, of, uh, I think, exporting natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas. Uh, would you care to just comment on that briefly? Oh, absolutely. Here's the thing. When we export natural gas, um, what we're really doing is we're exporting uh, energy that can never be reclaimed or or gotten back in any way, shape, or form. One of the most important metrics that we could be tracking, should be tracking as a society, is what's our energy returned on energy invested? Because Mm -hmm. surplus energy that's left over after we go and get energy out of the ground it's the surplus energy that we run everything on. It's why our freeways are full and economic vitality is, is happening and food is growing and moved. And what happens when you liquefy natural gas is you take 25% of the energy contained in that natural gas, just turning it into a liquid. It takes an extraordinary amount of energy to take a gas and liquefy it, uh, which is what you have to do. That's what liquefied natural gas is. So uh, getting that out into... Um, uh, export markets might make perfect economic sense, but I'll tell you what, from an energy standpoint, it's the equivalent of wasting it. Yes, we've got quite a bonanza right now, but I'll bet you anything, in 20, 30 years, people are going to be saying, boy, I wish we'd been a little bit more careful with that natural gas. I wish we'd used it to do something with rebuild our infrastructure, um, you know, make our country more profitable and prosperous, but instead we liquefied it and sold it. Yeah, well, it's, it might make sense in the short run. I, I believe both Democrats and Republicans seem to be supporting it, the policy that would be more aggressively geared towards quickly removing that energy from the ground and exporting it. And in the short run, of course, that's what politicians most often are looking at, right? It's the short term rather than the longer term. Absolutely. Of course. So, so you're, you're taking a view, clearly taking a view about what's sustainable, um, and you know how we can, how we need to live our lives. In a way, you're seeing that there are going to be changes that are forced on us just by the laws of nature and economics, uh, and that you want to get out ahead of that and be prepared for those uh, those times rather than to have to act uh, retroactively. Well, it's absolutely the case that we have this monetary system, we have this economy that's built on this perpetual growth. Uh, Nothing can grow forever. And we're in the early stages of this resolution of this game where, you know, as a country, just economically, we've been just forget about um, other, forget about other things in the background. Just economically, we've been living beyond our means for decades. Mm -hmm. We've been increasing credit market debt by maybe eight or 9% per year. Nominal GDP growth, maybe half that underneath it. So you can't constantly grow your debts faster than your income, and that's what we've been doing. Nobody wants to own up to that fact. The Fed would like to print us out of that box. The politicians don't even remotely want to go there and talk about it. Mm-hmm. But everybody's sort of pretending, like those three monkeys with their hands held over all their sensory organs, uh, that, that we can just you know, ignore it and, and get back to um, how we used to be. And we can't. It's time to have those conversations that say, look, things have changed. We've hit the end of the road um, with respect to debt accumulation, but we're also hitting the end of the road with respect to aquifers, 
Bees are disappearing like crazy. Soil's going away. Uh, the oceans are fished out. These are all warning signs that say, hey, maybe it's time for us to consider another way of, of, of doing things rather than the old way. And the system just wants to preserve the status quo, and I think there's huge risks in that. Well, that certainly is a sort of a synopsis of your big picture, uh, I, I suppose, uh, view of the world. And uh, I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, and, of course, I think you know each of us have to try to do what we can uh, to, first of all, protect ourselves and our families. And then, I think, do what you're doing also to try to educate people about the realities of uh, you know of these sort of natural constraints that are that are uh, that we have to face, whether we like it or not. But you talk about getting out ahead. You're talking about um, uh, living beyond our means. One area, certainly, where we have been encouraged, uh, masses of Americans have been encouraged to live beyond their means, was in the housing sector, the McMansions that were uh, that were uh, made available to people who couldn't, by any stretch of the imagination, pay for them. Uh, and so we went through this horrendous housing bubble and this collapse, and the economy, I would argue, is still uh, hampered to a very great extent by this housing collapse and the ex- uh, excessive investment in housing and building construction that took place. And I look, uh, Chris, I look at the uh, new home construction numbers that the government puts out, and although they're off the bottom, they still are very, very low and not much off the bottom from where we were in in past recessions. It seems to me uh, that this is one of the most lackluster housing recoveries that we've ever had uh, since World War II. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Certainly with respect to uh, uh, new house construction, uh, those numbers, as you mentioned, they're, they're in the basement, uh, particularly looking at the size of our population. They should probably be twice as high uh, as they currently are, uh, j- just to account for new household formation. But we overbuilt so dramatically in the first part of this that we're still eating through that. Secondarily, um, we built very, very large houses <laughs> and that multiple families could actually live in if they chose to. Um, and thirdly, we... we uh, we've started getting used to building the types of houses that, frankly, are not really starter homes in any sense of the word, and uh, lending standards have now tightened up considerably for first time for, for anybody who's a private citizen attempting to uh, buy a home or refinance a mortgage. You know, you've got to have a good FICO score. You've got to have 20% down. Um, you, know, you have to meet a bunch of conditions, and uh, the pool of people who fit all those conditions is much smaller than it used to be. So, those are all, all still with us at this point in time, yeah. You know, uh, I want to refer to an article you wrote on your blog on June 4th, um, noting that big hedge fund money has come into the housing market and was scooping up distressed real estate. Uh, before you comment on that, I, I think it might be a good time to let our listeners know where they can go to follow your work. Is it, um, is it Chris Martinson? No, what is the website um, that they should go to? Oh, they should go to peakprosperity.com. That's right. And if they Google my name, Chris Martinson, they'll get uh, there very easily as well. Okay, peakprosperity.com. And I I guess that's where I picked up this this article that you wrote about hedge funds, uh, huge, you know, professional money coming in and buying, just scooping up masses amount of houses, numbers of houses in a given market. Um, But I, I... you know, gather from your article, you don't think this is necessarily a good thing. Why not? Well, you know, this is big institutional money. It's, it's private equity, it's hedge funds, it's even the big banks themselves. J.P. Morgan's got a 
uh, fund that's buying real estate, homes, residential homes, uh, uh, Chase does. So, so we're looking at um, a situation where the big money's moving in. And what they're really doing is they're coming, you know, there was, for a long time we had this uh, shadow inventory that everybody was worried about. What was going to happen to house prices as this shadow inventory hit the market? And the banks were worried about it because what shadow inventory was were REOs, real estate-owned properties. These REOs are just held on the bank's books. They, they, you know, foreclosed on houses or didn't even initiate the foreclosure process. People lived in houses for years. Mm-hmm. And these assets were just languishing on the bank's uh, books. And if the banks had to take a, a write-down on those, they would have, in many cases, um, taken huge losses or even been insolvent. Mm-hmm. So they've been parked, uh, sitting on the shadow inventory, and then, oops, all along, you know, they have to find somebody to take big chunks of this off their hands, and, and you get people like Blackstone um, and other large uh, private uh, money like that coming along saying, yeah, you know what, we'll take, we'll take those off your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're buying them by the thousands in many cases, you know, whole hundreds or thousands at a single auction. They're paying full price, they're paying cash, no contingencies. So if you're a first-time home buyer and you're up against an all-cash, uh, full-value, no-contingency offer, mm-hmm. and you're over there with your silly little mortgage and maybe you've got a, a condition as well that you have to sell your property first or, or you want an inspection, um, guess what? You're going to lose that auction, and that's been happening like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, People are getting nudged or even uh, shoved out of, out of the process. And many of uh, these markets, not everywhere, um, but certainly in all the markets where you saw first those really dramatic price rises, Phoenix, Las Vegas, South Florida, these are all markets that are impacted by this institutional buying. They all had these huge crashes, so the institutions move in, and they're looking for um, quick turnaround on, on uh, capital gains, and they're also looking for rental income off of these properties. And so the things that I think are, are not quite right about this, first on a moral level, mm-hmm. the idea that J.P. Morgan has got a fund. You know, we bailed these guys out with taxpayer yeah. money, and right. now they're going to turn around and take and, – and by the way, in many cases, they were bailed out with money that was printed out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. Right. So a central bank prints money out of thin air, gives it to one of its client banks, and then they turn around and buy real assets with it, um, which you and I and other people like us need to live in, real people needing real houses to live real lives. It just strikes me as wrong yeah. on a fundamental level that the banking system enables itself to print money out of thin air, buy real assets, and then rent them back to us. Um, there's just something off in that story for me. And uh, the second thing that concerns me is that these guys, Blackstone, you know, these, this is institutional money. They're cutthroat. They're, they're not here to, you know, they, they talk this story about, oh, we're helping to support house prices in these markets. Listen, they're after a buck, and that's all the long and the short of the story. So if I'm Atlanta and all of a sudden thousands of my homes are owned by these big firms, if I'm the mayor, I gotta be concerned. What happens if this investment doesn't work out like yeah. they hope? Uh, what happens? You know, absentee landlords are not great in the first case, but mm-hmm. when you've got somebody cutthroat like these financial firms, they'll cut losses like nobody's business. So in many cases, it's not really Blackstone that's bought these. They've set up a special. Uh, a vehicle off to the side. It's a side company. It's been um, capitalized. It's out there buying um, these homes. And so if push comes to shove and this all doesn't work out and, you know, they have to walk away from it all, they have an insulated, you know, vehicle that they can just, you know, cut the strings on, take whatever losses uh, are incurred over on that side of things and walk. And And could care less about what happens to the housing prices after they hit and run. 
Yeah, not just the housing. They, they could care less about what happens to communities or right. to cities. It's, that's not that's not in their stable of concerns at this point in time. Uh, right now or in the future. So, no. so I, I don't think it's wise to have um, big institutional money running around with all of this um, funny money that the Fed has created, and and using it to um, outcompete and ultimately distort. Uh, real estate markets, because those are, these aren't stocks and bonds. This isn't stuff for Wall Street to gain. These are real houses with real communities that people need to live in mm-hmm. in order to live lives. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just, um, I'm, not, I'm not really down with the practice at this point. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm completely with you on that, Chris. You know, back in March, um, uh, you, you, well, you just mentioned the shadow inventory, but back in March I read an article from a website called Counterpunch in which the author claimed that the housing recovery was largely an illusion. Uh, they said that aside from the artificial uh, support that the markets have been given you know, by extremely low interest rates and the governments buying Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, supporting the mortgage market, they suggested that, um, uh, that the supply of mortgages on the market uh, have been held back to a great extent, I guess, in this shadow inventory that you're talking about. They said that the banks are holding most of the, their distressed properties off the markets. I think they used a figure like 80% uh, being held off the markets, and that 20% maybe they're selling off to a great extent to the, to the professionals that you're talking about. Uh, and they're saying that they're controlling the number of underwater homeowners who are allowed to sell uh, you know, short sales or sell their houses for less than the current mortgages. Uh, do you do you uh, have a sense that that's an accurate uh, appraisal of the markets? Are, are the, the the banks still, to a great extent, controlling the supply, keeping the prices at some level they want to keep them at? Is oh, that- absolutely, absolutely. They've been um, doing the extend and pretend program for a long time on that front. Like I said, they really don't want to recognize the losses, and to the extent that banks can control. Uh, the, the recognition of those losses, they will. And, and it only makes sense. Um, so there's a number of ways they can do that. One is, is if you do not allow people to undergo short sales and people cannot afford uh, to otherwise make up the difference in their uh, mortgage to the, to the sale price, they just get stuck in those properties mm-hmm. until such time as the properties come back in price. So everybody's been sort of crossing their fingers. The best I can, ho- I can, you know, the nicest spin I can put on this from the banker's point of view is to say, listen, they don't want to take the losses because that'll just really start to wipe things out for the banks. Um, that'll create all sorts of trouble. They've been hoping the housing market was going to come back organically all on its own. And uh, to some extent that's happened, but part of that is, you know, the places we saw the most dramatic price rises in the Case-Shiller um, 20 market index uh, that came out most recently, in five of the top six, those houses, housing markets were all places where institutional money had, was most active. So, so they're in there bidding up the prices, and, and then um, that's really helping to drive things. And everybody's kind of hoping that everything's going to get back together. But like you said, we, we've had the artificially low interest rate support as part of this. And then next, you know, we need housing and jobs. You need jobs. And not these part-time jobs that have been coming out and, and not the, you know, the low-wage jobs. We need real fundamental solid economic growth to support the idea of higher housing prices. The Fed has it backwards. It's doing everything it can to support higher housing prices, thinking that the tail wags the dog. They support higher equity prices, thinking that if the stock market's good, the economy will be good. They have it exactly backwards. Right. Well, it certainly is good for Wall Street, and it certainly is good for those banks. I suppose uh, these policies are good for those banks that, that, as you say, they're client banks, the Fed's client banks. So, 
it, uh, it sort of is easy to understand once you understand the structure of who really runs and controls our country, I suppose. But, um, but, but l- let me ask you, Chris, do you think in some of these markets, uh, are, the, uh, are the housing prices, you know, where, the, where you control the supply and you have an artificially high price, uh, are they getting beyond the fundamental values? And, and how do you judge fundamental values in a housing uh, project? Well, certainly, uh, you know, the, the types of price rises we've seen in some of these markets, um, 10% year-over-year, 12, mm-hmm. 15, uh, 20, even one market which had 23% year-over-year gains, um, those are extraordinary. That, that's not a, a normal sort of a price uh, of a, a rise in housing prices. In times past, whenever we've seen um, price rises as fast as we saw over the last year, and this is nationally, uh, we've always been in bubble territory and housing prices have, have reverted. So we could make an argument just on the pace of change that mm-hmm. we're seeing um, bubbly sorts of signs. But fundamentally, we are not seeing the type of income growth and job growth that we need to see to support the idea of, of vastly higher housing prices at this point in time. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't see the fundamental reason for this yet, with some notable exceptions. North Dakota, go for it. I mean, they've got a huge energy boom going on yeah. there. Texas, go for it. Absolutely. California in um, the technology markets, there's a huge housing shortage compared to jobs in, in some of these places. So mm-hmm. uh, I agree with all, you know, I understand all of those. But Phoenix, Las Vegas, back in bubbly territory, Detroit, this is crazy time. Yeah. Detroit's, has, Detroit's coming back, the market, you're saying? Yeah, in- yeah. Well, Detroit's part of that part of that mix. They've seen some really um, stunning gains from really obscenely low levels. That's incredible. But, but even still, we've, that's where institutions are playing. Yeah. So you're looking. I mean, if I'm going to buy a house uh, as an investment, not to live in, I'm looking at uh, the rents I can get out of it, uh, the revenues, uh, just like you would any other business, I suppose. The revenues relative to the cost of of running that uh, that little business. Uh, is is that the way these big hedge funds are looking at these when they package these deals? They get a whole bunch of these houses, or are they looking to uh, perhaps package them and sell them off to someone else? For the most part, they're they're looking to run them themselves. Um, so they're you know they're buying them. They're getting management companies to go out and start to manage them because many cases the properties need fixing up and a little TLC. Obviously, they need managing during the whole rental process and. Um, throughout, so they're hiring companies to do that, or forming companies that, that will uh, attract that sort of talent. And mostly, as I understand it, they're looking at the cap rates and you know uh, thinking about their future capital gains as well in the mix. So yeah, they're running them like businesses. The numbers have to add up. I, I don't think they're out there trying to lose money. Um, I think they will discover that real estate's a fundamentally different beast from uh, a bond portfolio. But um, we'll see how they do. No. Well, asset prices, uh, I mean, the, the idea is a sort of a trickle-down mentality from both Democrats and Republicans. And, in fact, what we really need to do is have a stronger economy so incomes are growing, so jobs are growing. But it seems to me, Chris, we're moving more and more away from the kind of jobs that are required to really provide the income that's needed to, uh, to get us back on strong footing. It seems to me that we have more than ever a reallocation of wealth from the people that produce it, I like to say the miners, manufacturers, farmers, inventors, people that are actually doing things for other human beings, uh, they are not faring all that well these days, even in the sector that I'm most closely associated with, the mining sector. When I look at, uh, when I travel up to Vancouver, it's all the investment bankers that have the yachts in the harbor there. It's not usually the, uh, the geologists and the mining engineers, or the guys that are really making it happen. 
Uh, what, what's wrong here? What's wrong with this picture? Why can't we get back to an economy that allows people who actually to be people who actually produce something to be rewarded instead of having the bankers and the government take a bigger and bigger share of GDP all the time? You know, even even way back in Roman times when they started their coin clipping um, activities, they noted that one of the things that happened was uh, speculation became the pastime. It, it, speculation was far more lucrative than actually doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, surprise, surprise, fast forward, here we have vast amounts of money printing, which is the modern amount, equivalent of coin clipping, and the people that we're revering and who are taking the most gains are actually speculators. They're people who, um, if I could put this mildly, produce nothing. Right. They, don't, they don't add any value whatsoever. They're very, very good and sophisticated, clever, smart, intelligent about shuffling paper, Moving, you know, moving digits from one place to another and, and creaming um, some of the, the profits off of that, but they're not really producing anything. And uh, th- that's a, a common complaint during periods of, of uh, monetary madness, which uh, we're certainly in the middle of. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly it's hard not to get caught up in that myself. I mean, I'm looking at, um, uh, you know, looking at opportunities. Uh, to speculate in the market, and you know, I have to confess that I've done it myself. Even realizing and, and sort of feel uh, almost a little bit dirty about it. I mean, I feel better about it when I sit down and, and do uh, some honest work in trying to analyze uh, a mining company and its prospects than I do uh, trying to figure out whether I should go short on this stock or long this one. But it, but it's, it, it is this then the speculative nature is created by fiat money or by money that, uh, uh, let's say, debasing of the currency? Is that what sort of leads to this, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Whenever you've got um, deficit spending by the government, so you know, they're, they're just borrowing, uh, you, you automatically have a redistribution of wealth, and people line up at the trough in order to be uh, first, in, first at the trough for, for that redistribution. And they usually do extraordinarily well, um, whether it's war profiteering or railroad profiteering back at the turn of the last century or whatever that profiteering happens to be. Maybe it's data mining companies now um, lining up at the NSA trough. doesn't matter. Uh, so you always have, have uh, a, a, a very large amount of people who are, are seeking to curry favor and um, uh, pull the levers of the machine, as it were, rather than build a business. Uh, in straight competition, uh, that happens when you have massive deficit spending. But the most important one is when you have an interventionist central bank that is fiddling with interest rates that are well away from what the market would ordinarily set those interest rates at, uh, that's where you have the most egregious forms of speculation. And I, I admit it is hard not to figure out how to short this stock or go long that sector or try and guess which way the Fed's going to you know, pull the levers next and just you know, position myself for that um, what looks to be a free money train, but these Jay, these events always—it's—they they seem so powerful and and reasonable when you're in the middle of them, and they always burst. They always do because it's fundamentally when the—it's not possible for the Fed Reserve to print 85 billion dollars, which is what they do every month, and hand that out. That's real money with real purchasing power. It's not possible to print purchasing power. So where did that come from? By definition, it's an accounting identity. They took that purchasing power from someplace else in the economy. They had to. Right now, it's savers that are being asked to um, funnel all of their savings uh, you know, towards, towards uh, this effort. But eventually, I think we'll see that turn into inflation when, when that means everybody sort of participates. Everybody who has any sort of identifiable financial wealth has to start contributing that in the form of inflation. 
um, to these things. And because it's just it's this simple. You can't print prosperity out of thin air. You can't print purchasing power with you know and, and have it be real. It has to, by definition, be taken from someone else. And that no, taking is what we're in the middle of. No doubt about it. You know, David Stockman here in New York uh, mentioned uh, at a book signing uh, breakfast that I attended recently, he says that, you know, with holding interest rates down where they are now, Bernanke is essentially picking the pockets of savers to the tune, I think he said, of something like $450 billion a year and transferring that to the banks, essentially, by making the banks' borrowing costs so so much lower. Um, and and the other thing I wanted to ask you, Chris, um, you mentioned we're likely to have increasing amounts of inflation in the future, and I think you're right about that. But I would argue that we have an awful lot more inflation now. If you define inflation as a cost of staying alive, the cost of living, uh, that it's much higher than the government numbers. Do you have an opinion on that? I do. There, there's two components to that. First, the government numbers are just uh, patently, ridiculously false. Um, they, they have a number of games they play. One of the worst ones is how they weight things. Another one is substitution, uh, where they, they claim that as prices go up, we substitute lesser goods and, and are just as happy for that. Uh, another is hedonics. And, and these are all just statistical manipulations right. that I think have to be backed out to understand where we are in inflation. But just to, to, to paint the picture simply, if you are an elderly person, the CPI tells you nothing, which is our inflation measure, tells you nothing about your about the inflation you're experiencing because they'll have drugs weighted at maybe 2% of the CPI and they'll have um, property taxes aren't even part of the CPI. Right. Um, uh, you know, so health care is, is really low in there compared to your experience. So if you're an elderly person, your experience with inflation is going to be probably your property taxes, your food, your energy, and your medical care and drugs. That's probably got you 85% covered. Right. And... Uh, and if you, we looked at, at that weighting for an elderly person, we'd find that uh, inflation is at least three times the official numbers, using the official numbers, um, just the subcomponents, reweighting those. Uh, and so, so yeah, in, if we're getting, you know, inflation is, is higher than, than uh, it, it's advertised. That's clear. But the biggest mistake that the Fed has made, and they started this under Greenspan, and I, I faulted him for it uh, for over a decade now, and I'm, I'm continuing uh, this little tirade against it, is they don't count inflation of financial assets as inflation. They count it as, as wealth creation. So when right. the Fed sees stocks go up, they say, that's good. And they see bonds go up, they're like, that's good. And they see real estate go up, and they say, that's good. They don't understand that, that that's a form of inflation. The bank, Central Bank of New Zealand doesn't make this mistake. They clicked their housing bubble really early on because the central bank governor down there saw housing prices going up, and he said, that's inflation. Uh-huh. That, that's not wealth creation. We're not getting richer. Right. I have a house. It's a depreciating asset. It's not a wealth machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the Fed right now excludes all of those sources of inflation and says, see, we're not inflating. But, in fact, if you look at everything that's moving in prices and count money against all the things that are out there, we see a lot of inflation going on right now. And uh, that's likely to continue. And the only question in this story for me is when does that inflation flip away, turn its attention away from stocks and bonds and back towards the things that we more traditionally associate with inflation, which is commodities, which is stuff, yeah. real goods. 
Well, we've, we've certainly seen a pullback in the things, the stuff, if you want to put it that way. And uh, we only have a couple of minutes left here yet, Chris. But gold and silver, uh, which is the topic that's most near and dear to the hearts of our listeners, what is your what are your thoughts about those markets now? Are we close to some sort of a bottom here, or do you think we, or is it just impossible to tell? Oh no, I, I'm pretty convinced we're we're close to a bottom here. And I've always I've had two stories um, in gold for me. One is just the fundamental reasons. I started investing in gold personally back in 2002, and those fundamental reasons remain in place. They're they are for me negative real interest rates. Uh, the Fed funds rates at about zero or quarter percent, depending on how you measure it, and even the CPI is at 1.1 percent. So we have negative real interest rates. We still have deficit spending, uh, loose if not reckless monetary policies. And fundamentally as well, I see that the price of newly mined ounces of gold continues to climb higher and higher, uh, in part because the ore grades are, are lower and lower, and secondarily because of higher costs for fuel and equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those fundamental reasons are there. Uh, but now to those lists of reasons that I had in 2002, sadly we have to add a few, few new ones here. Uh, MS Global, proving that client accounts can be looted and then drawn into lengthy mm-hmm. and uh, unsatisfying bankruptcy processes. Mm-hmm. We've got Cyprus proving the banking system intends to make depositors pay for its mistakes. We've got mm-hmm. politicians openly calling for various wealth taxes to be levied on anybody who's dared to save money. Um, you know, and, and so these are all uh, reasons that I, I think uh, having money, real money, and gold is real money to me, out of the banking system just makes all the sense in the world. And to this now, we also have to add ever-increasing um, calls, I think, for some sort of international settlement system to replace this chaotic and ultimately, I think, going to be highly disruptive free-floating exchange rate fiat money system we've got, um, you know, with Japan doubling its monetary base. You know, if, if you can just print money and buy real stuff, eventually the world catches on and says stop. Uh, and, and we have to have a way to settle international accounts. And... Uh, Hugo Salinas Price had a nice piece recently, and, and he, he noted that we haven't had settlements since August 15, 1971, and all that's happened is massive imbalances have built up, and we're going to have to settle those one way or the other. I think there's a chance gold is the settlement mechanism. Well, and, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, no I, th- I think there's a growing uh, belief that, uh, that ultimately we are going to have some sort of an international settlement in gold and, and silver again. It may not be the United States that proposes it. It may be the creditor nations that demand it. Um, but uh, very interesting stuff. Chris, uh, one minute. I'm, I'm going to just take one minute from our next segment because I, I just want to get your quick opinion on this, uh, what is being called tapering. You know, it seems to me that we have sort of a binary outcome here. If, uh, if the markets believe that there's even some chance of a tapering, meaning a re- withdrawal even in the growth of mo- new money creation, it gets nervous. And, and I'm wondering... This is not going to end in a end very very well in my view because uh, if I mean what are the, what are the choices here? Mr. Bernanke has to keep on printing money more and more faster and faster, or if he even slows down, uh, it could go. The markets could go in the other direction. Do you think we could have a crash in the equity markets, uh, in the bond markets, if this happens? I mean, wh- how do you see this playing out? Well, there's. 
there's two different modes the Fed operates in. One is it leads the markets, and the second is it follows the markets. Mm-hmm. At, at turning points, it always ends up following the markets. Very interesting. All your listeners ought to be keyed into the idea of what's been happening to interest rates across the globe. The Japanese government bond market, the JGB market, looking at that, watching the 10-year treasury, uh, obviously doing things I'm sure the Fed is unhappy with, looking at Greek debt, Spanish debt. All of a sudden, we have a, a regime across the world where we see rising interest rates, which is not on the script. This is not what, what they've been looking for at the Federal Reserve level. And uh, if and when interest rates rise, literally the Fed is going to be forced into following mode. It is no longer going to be able to conduct its policies uh, as it has been. And it is not only going to have to taper, it may find itself in the position of having to unwind its balance sheet. That is going to be extraordinarily destructive to um, asset prices. The equity market is what everybody's looking at. It's actually the bubble in the bond market that I'm most concerned about. If that one lets go, uh, it'll make anything that we've seen so far really look like a walk in the park. You had uh, the new governor of the Bank of England uh, just yesterday warning the world, uh, well, his, his MPs over there, about a dangerous bond bubble. In his estimation, I share that view. Uh, Bill Gross, the PIMCO, shares that view. A lot of people share that view. That's the thing we have to keep our eyes on, and it's the number one reason I hold gold, because if the bond bubble starts to go, which institutions are solvent, which aren't, which nations are solvent, which aren't, will all be open to question, and I would much, much rather not have my assets uh, parked anywhere in the system, because we've already seen uh, you get dangerous sort of reactions on the part of the ruling classes when these things happen. Yeah, no doubt about it. And that would be the trigger I would see as a possible reason why the markets are going to force some sort of gold or, a mon- uh, say, metal uh, settlement, uh, gold or silver, probably gold, uh, for international settlements of trade. That, that I think it's inevitable, Chris. I want to thank you very much for your insights here again and, and tell people that they should go to peakprosperity.com to follow um, Chris's work on a regular basis. Chris, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us again today. Jay, it's been a pleasure being back with you. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope, very soon. Uh, oh. Folks, don't go away. We do have to go to commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Ken Cunningham of Miranda Gold, a company that has some very interesting exploration targets in, uh, in Columbia and Nevada. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Mr. Cunningham. Profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologist mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. 
Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, well, I was mistaken, actually. Ken Cunningham, the CEO of Miranda Gold, will be with me next week. He uh, wasn't due this week, so I misinformed you. But uh, So what I would like to do right now is talk a bit about the upcoming show that I will be attending uh, in Dallas. Um, uh, this is a show called the Liberty Mastermind Symposium. I uh, would like, also like to uh, remind you, as the United States uh, government continues to take away our liberties, that Hitler never did anything that was illegal. What I mean by that is that as laws are changed, uh, then it provides the government to go in and do whatever they want to to you, and you don't have any recourse. That's my greatest fear, and I think that's the fear of a growing number of people uh, the, these days, given the kind of news that we've had recently, both from the IRS as well as uh, the uh, the news about uh, our government really getting information and learning and having the ability, at least, to learn to know everything about everything that you and I do and even what we're thinking and what we're saying. The idea of free speech uh, in that environment seems to be... Um, more of a fantasy than a reality. Well, I'd also, as I said, like to talk to you a little bit about the Liberty Mastermind Conference that I will be attending on the 28th and 29th of this month. And I would encourage you to go to J. Taylor Media and click on the Liberty Mastermind Symposium to sign up for this conference. Uh, There is an early registration. It isn't free, uh, but I think uh, until the 20th, uh, of this month, you can sign up for $249. You can save 50 bucks off the normal price. But this is going to be a really great time, and I think the highlight for me is going to be that I'm going to get to, a chance to meet Martin Armstrong. He's the former chairman of Princeton Economics International. That's a, a former leading multinational uh, corporation uh, advisor with uh, offices in Paris, London, Sydney, Hong Kong, Tokyo, uh, and he was really, well, he was just really highly acclaimed. I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. Other speakers at, uh, at the conference, Jeff Berwick, who's been on this show, David Morgan, who's been on this show, John Robino, been on this show as well, uh, as Bill Murphy from GATA will be there. Uh, Mickey Falp will be there. Um, uh, Carrie Lutz. Uh, and Robert Ian both have been on this show as well. So a number of people that have been on this show and a lot of others that I haven't met up with yet that I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting. Uh, but for sure, in my view, uh, just to meet up with Martin Armstrong and listen to what this man has to say is more than worth the uh, price of admission. There will be other things going on uh, as well. 
uh, at the symposium. If you go to Liberty Mastermind, click on that. Uh, that is, go to jtaylormedia, J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com. Along the right-hand side of our website, you can just click on Liberty Mastermind uh, banner, and it will take you right to information uh, on this um, on this event. Well, Martin Armstrong, as I say, he's, he's a real legend, uh, somebody that I've uh, known about, heard about, never met, in part never met because he has been imprisoned for a number of years. Um, he, there's, there's going to be a movie coming out about Martin Armstrong and uh, just a little bit of a synopsis of that movie. The year is 2012. Europe is stumbling from one emergency summit to the next. America has gone crashing through the $15 billion debt ceiling and people are taking to the streets across the world because they have realized that something is wrong. But after 11 years off the radar, a man surfaces in Philadelphia who used the number pi in the 90s to predict economic turning points with precision. Already in the 70s, he discovered that the global economy appeared to be based on the 8.6-year cycle. He multiplied the cycle by 6, which gave him 51.6 years, and it all fitted perfectly. Black Friday of 1869, the commodity market panic of 1920, the second and third Punic Wars, 8.6 years equaled 3,140 days. 3,141, the magic number pi times 1,000. With uh, his secret knowledge, Martin Armstrong predicted the exact date of the October 1987 crash, the decline of the dollar in 1986, and the Nikkei crash in 1989. And he was named Economist of the Decade. In Japan, he became so popular because of his uh, predictions that they just simply called him Mr. Yen. In 1999, he was arrested on charges of fraud, which he still disputes to this day. Martin Armstrong refused to play along with the banksters' game. He, was, uh, he made powerful enemies in New York, the investment bankers, the hedge fund managers, Solomon Brothers, and Goldman Sachs. Uh, the FBI and the U.S. Securities uh, and the Exchange Commission wanted him to deliver his secret model. They accused him of manipulating the world market, the world economy. He was incarcerated for seven years for contempt of court. Now Martin Armstrong is back, released from prison after 12 years, and he is writing a newsletter that you can avail yourself to as well. He agreed uh, to be the focal point of a movie uh, called Financial Crisis. Uh, we are facing the sovereign debt crisis. Uh, and he seems to offer a solution which uh, will be revealed throughout the film, a solution how to avoid the Armageddon of Western society. So this is a, a very, very interesting man, I can, uh, to say the least, and I'm really looking forward to meeting Martin. Uh, hopefully be able to get him on this show sometime in the future as well. And probably as the movie comes out, we'll be talking about that as well. Um, I have sort of become a believer to an extent in cycles. Certainly, Charles Nanner's work is, is cyclical in nature, not exclusively cyclical, but certainly has a, as a main uh, structure the cycles of, of markets. Uh, the rhythm of markets, certainly Elliott Wave uh, is along those lines, Robert Prechter and other great practitioners of Elliott Wave. Uh, so there is something to the cycles aspect of, of figuring out which way markets go. I think that human beings and uh, behavior of societies in the large, longer term is cyclical, which is one of the reasons I'm not uh, very hopeful in many ways about things happening in the United States so soon. It seems to me that conditions were right in 1776 for setting, thing to, for setting up our country in a way that could 
that we could be free for a long period of time. But now people seem not to care very much about freedom, not to care very much about liberty, perhaps because they've taken it for granted, perhaps because we've had freedom and liberty for so long. People aren't that interested in it and don't and sort of figure it's always going to be with us. Um, I sadly to say that's not the case. And as we give up our liberty and our freedom for the sake of safety or uh, alleged safety, pretended safety, or real safety for that matter, we could be uh, facing, I think, um, some very dismal things in the future, which is one of the reasons that I like to have people on this show that, that think it's possible uh, that uh, that there could be some good times ahead of us, and but we do need. I mean, if there's one theme that runs through this show, it's the notion that we do have to understand the reality. We can't put our heads in the sand. We can't try to believe, make believe things are okay. Oh, we can, uh, and in the short term, that would make life easier if we took that attitude. But in reality, I believe very firmly that in order to prepare ourselves as best we can for the future, we have to understand what's going on and what the real causes of the current problems are. So uh, with that said, we do have to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, I'll have some closing thoughts about today's show, as well as uh, some, uh, uh, I'll let you know who's coming on the following week, some very interesting guests coming up uh, at the last Tuesday of this month. So don't go away. I'll be right back. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, just some uh, closing remarks about today's show. Sean Filer uh, was with me uh, the first hour, and Sean outlined uh, or really basically confirmed my view that nothing will be fixed by the current policies. If anything, the current economic policies and uh, and other policies are leading us down the road to destruction, unfortunately. Uh, that makes Sean extremely bullish on gold and gold stocks even more so. And I might just mention, uh, I was sort of highlighting bravado gold 
sold as a real true penny stock at 2.3 cents in the first uh, hour of today's show. It's a sponsor of this company. Uh, it has uh, some good properties, but this is just the, the dismal state that the junior gold sector is in. I suggested it was highly speculative. Uh, but uh, by the end of the day, before the show was over, the stock was selling at one, the last quoted at 1.75 cents per share. Well, I'm not recommending anybody buy this stock. I've bought a lot of it recently because I believe in the company. I believe in the projects they have. But I'm just saying that the gold shares have really been hit very hard. Gold closed today at 1369, by the way, uh, up off its lows, but still down for the day. So that's one of the reasons the shares have uh, have gotten hit again today. But what else is new? Chris Martinson uh, says that the uh, housing market is still in the tank, and Chris gave his views and agreed with the, uh, an article that I had passed along to him that 80% of the defaulted housing uh, mortgages have been kept off the banks by the uh, off the markets, I sh- should say, by the banks who are very concerned about keeping the illusion of a strong portfolio. Uh, and uh, to keep people buying their stock and keeping the the shell game going, the Ponzi scheme, as it were, uh, in the American uh, uh, in the American financial system, hedge fund money uh, going in, buying those houses, keeping them off the market, flipping them, looking for the quick buck. But as Chris suggested, the people and the investors that are buying these things, the big hedge funds out of the big banks, the J.P. Morgans and the like, could care less about those communities. Oh, of course, they'll say they care a lot, uh, but frankly, it's all about making the quick buck. It's uh, sort of a a hit-and-run, rape-and-pillage mentality, I'm afraid, that we've seen from Wall Street that is really the anti-capitalism. It's really the reason people hate capitalism more than anything. Eric Coffin came up with some really great ideas. Colorado Gold, uh, Colorado Resources, which is one of Eric's picks, has been a real winner. Uh, Seventy-four cents today. Earlier today, only forty million shares outstanding. Uh, Eric gave his reasons why he likes it. Mondaro Gold, uh, also uh, thirty-two cents. Another really looks very, very interesting. Mondoro at thirty-two cents, forty-two million shares. Lots of cash on its balance sheet. Gold Quest at forty-nine cents, one hundred and forty-four million shares. But they've already outlined some two-plus million ounces of gold, no doubt, in their Dominican Republic prospect. And then more speculative, but next to Gold Quest is Precipitate Gold with. Fourteen and a half cents, only twenty million shares outstanding. Uh, certainly, early stage exploration story there in Precipitate, but uh, also um, looking very, uh, very, very good uh, as an exploration play. Well, I do believe that we're not very far from the gold markets turning around. You know, I just picked up something from Zero Hedge today that I have to pass along to you because we have this uh, paper game. It's the the futures market that is dominated by the players, by the hedge. Well, the hedge funds on the, on the buy side and the uh, and the commercials, which are the commercial banks and the, uh, the mining companies on the supply side, and um, and they are selling short, of course, selling into the market. So um, the so there's this game that's played, and there's a huge disconnect as we've talked about from time to time between the paper markets and the future markets. Well, this came from Zero Hedge. It says some. Uh, sometimes one, one must see to believe. Uh, and Zero Hedge passed out this picture in China. Uh, in this case, uh, believe, uh, they're showing a picture of some uh, 10,000 people that lined up in front of a gold shop to buy gold uh, during the three-day period, the Dragon Boat Festival in China. Uh, it is amazing the demand for gold because people outside the United States simply don't trust their governments, don't trust their 
their currencies, and I think the time will come when that, unfortunately, will be the case in the United States as well. I'm not cheering for it. I'm just saying the policies are almost making it uh, a no-brainer that our currency is going to go up in smoke as well, unfortunately. Uh, Charles Nanner believes that we could still see another down, uh, down to 12.85, but he's turning very bullish, uh, getting ready to go long on gold and silver. Next week, uh, Ed Qualls will be with me. Uh, Daniel uh, McAdams, uh, Daniel Adams uh, from the Ron Paul uh, Institute will be with me, and Ken Cunningham as well. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.